Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Around the world, politicians turn to nationalism for power. We were nationalist. We were nationalist. Are nationalist. And will remain nationalist. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. If I consider Russia my homeland, this means that I love in Russian, contemplate and think, sing in Russian, and say that I believe in the spiritual forces of the Russian people. Their vision of the nation is an exclusive one. It's based on being the right race or religion or ethnicity. The nation is closed to those who don't fit the description or even to those who object to the description. Our answer is clear. We would like to preserve Europe for Europeans. This also requires an effort from other countries. This is not only something we would like, but that also we want, because it depends on us to preserve Hungary for Hungarians. The Chinese people have been indomitable and persistent. We have the spirit of fighting the bloody battle against our enemies to the bitter end. In the face of this nationalistic and historical trend, all efforts and tactics to divide the nation are doomed to fail. It's proven politically potent and powerful. But is there another way? In this series, we'll look at nationalisms around the world and ask whether it's possible to counter them with a different kind of nationalism. Could the nation be inclusive? Could it be based on civic participation and liberal values? What would that look like? What would it mean? People are uncomfortable thinking about the political spectrum as one that is skewed in this society, which it is. It is an asymmetric politics where we have a somewhat center center-left party in the Democrats ranged against a wing of politics that is completely captured by the far right. And you don't have this in any other Western democracy. That's Ishan Theroar, 
columnist on the Foreign Desk at The Washington Post. I'm also joined by American historian Nell Irvin Painter. When I, as a 20th century American, think about nationalism, I think of Black nationalism, which was not so much against imperialism, like in India, but against white supremacy. In this fourth and final episode, we'll look at nationalism in the United States, how to understand it, and whether it can be beaten back. First, to define the terms with Ishan Thoreau. How does he think of American nationalism today? Where does it fit in our global context? Ishan is a columnist on the foreign desk of the Washington Post, and he authors today's Worldview newsletter and column. Ishan, thank you for, for doing this. Thanks for being with me. Great to be with you, Emily. So let's just define our terms. When I think of the nationalism that's in the U.S. right now, this dominant strain in our political rhetoric from the right, I think of a movement based on grievance by the people who have historically had all of the power in this country, namely white Christian men and those who would uphold their worldview, that is essentially aiming to keep the country to be for them. How do you see it? Am I being unfair? Is that overly simple? How do you understand the nationalism in in this country right now? As I am a journalist on the foreign desk, the international desk of the Washington Post, most of my thinking and observing of things sort of is of situations far outside the United States. And so as we've experienced the turbulence of the last, what what is it, six, seven years, Mm -hmm. it's been interesting to try to place all the ferment here in this country in the context of trends elsewhere. I think for a long time, there's been a tradition of American punditry to see whatever happens here in Washington as aloof from the rest of the world. Of course, this is you know, the American superpower. America is the, what's it, the original democracy. We do things differently here. We have our own system. We have our you know, perfect old constitution and so on. But uh, I think that illusion of America aloof from the world has changed. And so I mean, to, to answer your question, I don't necessarily see it as as racialized as you may, right? And mm. I think if you listen to the the discourse coming from the right-wing nationalist movement in this country, which is effectively the bulk of the Republican Party, it's not a sense of wanting to preserve something. They're not arguing for a, a defense of something. They are they are marching on the Bastille themselves. They see a hegemonic project, a hegemonic liberal project that in their view Holds has held sway for too long, dominates various institutions that they want to now subvert. So the the profound identity of it to me is one that is most easily framed with one word, which is illiberal. Uh, mm-hmm. It is a rejection of some of the fundamental tenets of our democracies over the last few, whatever, half to more than half a century. It's a rejection of the sensibilities that. We've all grown up with through education systems. It's a rejection of the advance of a certain kind of 21st century multicultural society. And, and it is absolutely rooted in grievance. It's absolutely rooted in a sense of, of dispossession. And you know you find echoes of it in many parts of the world, from obviously right-wing or far-right movements in Europe to the, the would-be authoritarians in places like Turkey and Hungary and so on. And I think it is all part of a continuum, and we can perhaps unpack that, but that's how I see what's happening in the U.S. It is very much an illiberal reactionary movement. Yes, there absolutely is a racial dynamic to it, but it would be 
we would be putting our heads in the sand to say it's just white Christian men who are, are manning the barricades of this. Right. And to be clear to our listeners, I am not trying to suggest that those are the only people who are involved in this project. Your point is about, we think of ourselves as aloof, I think is a really good one. I mean, you, you see it whenever anything bad <laughs> happens here, especially a certain type of pundit says, oh, this reminds me of, and like insert foreign country here. Do you think that that has hurt our own ability to, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but do you think this has hurt our ability to analyze what is happening here and see it as part of this continuum? Absolutely. I think it definitely hurt us in 2016, as we saw the rise of now former President Donald Trump. I don't think many in the mainstream media, many in specifically the political beltway media, had the tools or the language to think through what was happening. Yes, absolutely, there is a long-standing populist tradition in the United States. There's a long-standing nativist tradition in the United States. And we have seen you know, outgrowths of that and flares of that of American history. But what Trump did was, in wholesale, import some of the rhetoric and tactics of the European far right. His whole language around Muslim immigration, around Syrian refugees, Analytically, it made no sense in the American context, but it was entirely borrowed from the fear and sense of threat that existed in Europe. And he was overtly linking himself to movements there. And white nationalists in this country saw that and celebrated that. And it was, it was that kind of connection that I don't think many in the media here, especially you know the, the dreaded two sides kind of horse race mm -hmm. realm of journalists, had any ability to get their heads around or even talk about plainly. And I think to this day, we have a, a semantic problem when talking about American politics. People are, are uncomfortable thinking about the political spectrum as one that is skewed in this society, which it is. It is an asymmetric politics where we have a somewhat center of center-left party in the Democrats ranged against a wing of politics that is completely captured by the far right. And you don't have this in any other Western democracy. And we just don't have the language or cap capability of talking about it in the American context. And that has absolutely hurt the discussion, the discourse, and is one of the, the storylines to how we are in the situation we're in right now. I want to drill down into that farther. But first, you mentioned that we are on this, this spectrum and in some ways, as you say, there isn't really a comparison in other Western democracies. And in some ways, we aren't where certain other countries are just yet. So, you know, the, the second episode of this podcast series was about Hungary, which in some ways is, is already institutionally farther gone than the United States is. You know, you write about these movements all around the world. How would you describe the United States' place on the spectrum right now? I, I mean, I think there's one thing to talk about the the nature of the American polity, and there's another thing to talk about what the Republican Party is itself. And you know, we've already touted all those comparative VDEM reports uh, produced by this think tank in Sweden that has placed the Republican Party. It coordinates on a kind of grid where political movements are or factions are in various democracies around the world, and it has located the Republicans far to the right of their traditional counterparts in Europe. And alongside movements like Fidesz in, in Hungary, the AFD in Germany, and so on. Obviously, there are significant differences between the Republicans and that movement, but I think it's a recognition of the fact that this is a party that isn't any longer a mainstream democratic party. 
it represents something else. And what that is, is unclear. What that is, is potentially quite damaging to American polity. Or, you know, it's just a reflection of the energy and momentum of a certain movement in this country that is that is getting votes, that is doing well, and that will probably be doing very well in elections soon. And you know, how we judge that is a bit more complicated. So my next question then is, you know, this podcast series is meant to ask if it is possible to counter this with a civic or liberal nationalism. Given that we are in the asymmetric polity that you described, that one party is far right and the other one is is pretty centrist, do you think that this is possible? And what, you know, sort of having a, a civic or liberal nationalism be part of the American political discourse in, in, a, in a substantive way, not just like, this is, we're better than this. And what do you think that looks like? That's a terrific question. And it's so important to think through. I think if you are in a political movement, you need to have some kind of civic patriotic vision. You can't just be lamenting and complaining about the, uh, the racism or exclusionary vision of your rivals. And absolutely, it's a vision that has to be put forward. I am pessimistic about the extent of its appeal and reach. If you think about the institutions that undergird a successful brand of civic patriotism and nationalism, and I guess we should probably think about which word we want to use in this context. Maybe let's just stick to patriotism, I guess. You're talking about a school, a good public education system that fosters a sense of collectivity and universality from an early age. You're thinking about strong social capital uh, throughout society, through the generations, ways in which community, communities come together around, and no matter whatever it may be, their religious or ethnic or linguistic differences, and build community together. And on both fronts, you know, we're seeing that fraying in this country. There is a very clear right-wing political project to undermine the hold that public education and the university system has on American society. There is also a phenomenon that's built up over decades of collapsing social capital in this country, where you don't have you know, the famous Robert Putnam bowling clubs, or you don't have people going to churches, or at least not churches, <laughs> at least not the types that, that foster a certain sense of inclusion. You don't have all sorts of ways in which Communities found themselves bound together in the past. There's a degree of atomization. There's obvious polarization politically in various parts of the country. And so I think given that, I don't know where that civic patriotism can be fostered or how easily it can be fostered. One of the most powerful moments in my life was my naturalization ceremony here in the United States. And I was in a room of, say, 60 other people from, I would say, close to three dozen different countries. Every person who officiated the ceremony were also naturalized citizens from other places. And it was, it was a beautiful moment of acknowledging our diverse backgrounds, of our diverse identities, but the fact that they were all stitched together and bound together now in this story of the American nation, and that it was a story that we were all equally part of. And that was, for me, a deeply powerful moment. I would love every American to witness it, because you can't help but be moved by that exercise of civic solidarity. But the feelings that that generated inside me are so removed from the feelings of division and hate that we see smoldering in so much of the country. All right, we'll leave it there. Ishan, thank you again for taking the time. Thank you so much, Emily. Coming up after the break, I'll be speaking to Nell Urban Painter about why she's focusing on the local and the global, not the national. 
As a reminder, all four episodes of the series will be available on the Worldview podcast feed and online at newstatesman.com slash podcasts. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for £1 a week in the UK or $2 a week in the US by visiting newstatesman.com slash subscribe. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era, Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm joined now by Nell Urban Painter. Uh, professor Painter is one of the leading historians in and of the United States, a professor emerita at Princeton, also an artist, author of several works. Um, I'm honored and a little <laughs> embarrassed that she's that she's joining us on our podcast today. Thank you so much, Professor, for, for being here. Where are you embarrassed? <laughs> she's, uh, some of our listeners were based in the UK. Some of our listeners are not American. So I just want you to, to understand, listeners, we we're really we're in for a treat today. Well, I'm happy to be with you. When I reached out to you to sort of put forth this invitation, you said that you were already thinking about this sort of reimagining yeah. nationalism yes. in the United States. And I'm, I'm just curious if maybe to start out, you could speak a bit about why it's been top of mind and how you've been uh -huh. thinking of it. Yeah, I wasn't exactly thinking about nationalism. The New Republic asked me, one of 10 people, to talk about the United States in uh, 2050, which is 30 years from now. And I'm a historian and an old person, 
And so I thought about, well, what was 30 years back? And it was just the 90s, you know, and for me and for my people, the 90s was just yesterday. And things have changed since then, but the country is not unrecognizable. It is recognizable. So when I think forward, I think in 2050, we will still be recognizable. But one thing I, I cannot move away from is the state of the environment and global warming. And that is something that is very different from the way we were thinking 30 years in the past. So when I think about nationalism in the United States, obviously one of the first things I think about is the state of our politics. Right. But the next thing I think about is the state of our globe. And I think at the present time, we are not in a good position if we look nationally to think about ourselves as a nation in the world. But there are some suggestions that when we look at the state and local level, that Americans are reaching out across the lines that divide us right now, which first of all are race, and then gender and religion, or what we think about when we think religiously. So I, I really am impressed by a book called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. And what she is saying, she starts by thinking about the 1950s and 60s when Americans started desegregating public spaces. And one of those was swimming pools. So at that time, cities had swimming pools and even though they were paid for by all the people in the city, they were white-lined. So only white people could use them. And it, rather than desegregate, the cities, particularly in the South, just closed the pools. They paved them over. They filled them in. And what Heather McGee says is that that action deprived the sum of us. It didn't just deprive would-be swimmers who were Black, but all swimmers in those places. And what she is seeing now is that on the local level primarily, but in some states like Maine and Connecticut, that people are realizing that they have aims and needs and goals that cross lines of culture and cross lines of race. And they work together across lines of race for the public good. So that's what I see happening from the bottom up. I don't think that is going to save us in the very near future, right. but I think in the long run, it may well. Now, when I think about nationalism, you know, here I am a historian, I think about the nationalism of the 20th century, which probably if you asked me, I'd say, yeah, 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 that nationalism was good because it was decolonizing. So the 18th and 19th and early 20th centuries were eras of colonialism, imperialism, and people on the ground in places like India, for instance, one of the most famous examples, were nationalist in the sense that they didn't want to be part of this huge empire. They wanted to pursue their own goals. We know from 1947 how badly nationalism can play out. 
with uh, the breakup of India and the partition and the death that followed. When I, as a, a 20th century American, think about nationalism, I think of black nationalism, which was not so much against imperialism, like in India, but against white supremacy, against being disappeared or ex exiled from public space, deprived of the vote, and on a psychological way, being tempted to think you were nobody and you were not a good citizen. Certainly millions of other non-Black citizens thought of Black Americans in that way. So that's two kinds of nationalism that I think, on the whole, were probably forces for the good, or at least forces against bad stuff. We're not in that place now. And when I think of nationalism in the United States now, I think of the Trumpy people. What I find fascinating is the Trumpy people are parading around with U.S. flags. Some of them carry Confederate flags, but mostly they carry American flags, being very proud Americans. But obviously their definition of who belongs in their nation is narrow and probably would not include me. So on the one hand, they're wrapping themselves in nationalism, and on the other hand, they're defining their nation in a very exclusive way. And I suppose if we looked very closely at nationalism in the 20th century, we might well find that same dynamic playing out. Next to nationalism, another word that I read very often about our times is populism. And let me speak again for a moment as a historian, that for me, populism has a very strong class dynamic. It's the populism of the late 19th century, which was a populism of farmers and workers. That is not the populism of today. Today's populism is much more race and culturally defined than class defined. So I don't like to use the word populism for what I would see as a kind of pernicious kind of nationalism. So the short answer to your question is that in the short run, that is the next year, two, maybe three, I think that Trumpy nationalism is going to have its day because Trumpy people are in power on the local level and the state level, and perhaps even after next month, on the national level. That's too much to try to struggle against, to replace an exclusive nationalism with an inclusive sense of the nation. But I think in the long run, and building from the bottom up, it will be very possible to face climate needs because that's all of us. You can't say that you're not going to get involved with the climate because you don't like the people next door when you're all under six feet of water. Right. That climate and global warming may well bring us not to a nationalism, but to an internationalism, because it's not simply the United States that is suffering wildfires and floods. In fact, the very worst floods right now 
are in Nigeria and Pakistan, but we have had devastating floods in the United States as well. And then there's the whole question of water and water scarcity. So I think that nationalism will no longer have its day by 2050. So it sounds like the project right now should not be to try to come up with a civic or more inclusive nationalism as the counter Mm -hmm. to this Trumpy nationalism. And rather, we should be looking at local cooperation and local care and the global issues that are threatening us on on an existential level. That is my sense. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the way to get to the global level is probably to start locally. There's a certain strand of thought right now that says that, you know, Democrats just need better stories and just need to tell people something that they can believe in. And this is what will save us. And it sounds like you're saying that's just not going to work for the scale of the problem of exclusive nationalism right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And I think the hard part about thinking our way out of where we are now is that we need to realize that race is the nut or Mm -hmm. the barrier. It's something like 85, 90% of the adherents to the Republican Party identify as white. And when you look at the people who are running for office, I mean, not all of them are white, very obviously, you can see that. But the vast majority are, and the vast majority of supporters are. And the Democratic Party is a multicultural party and a multi-ethnic party. And I think that is the way we are going to have to go to persist on this globe. One of the problems, or one of the paradoxes, I guess I should say, of pluralism is that if you are the person putting forth sort of a plea for pluralism, you are asking people who are never going to accept you or never going to accept people who you believe need to be accepted to, to take part in the project. This is what Heather McGee says, though. Right. You, you don't start there. You start with a need, say, for water or for mitigating policies for floods. You don't start by saying, oh, we need to be together. It's, well, we need to deal with the next flood or we need to deal with the next fire. Right. Before the next uh, flood or fire comes, we will, we will leave it there. Thank you again for, for joining me today. I really sincerely appreciate it. You're very welcome. This concludes our series. And so we leave you with this. Can and should we reimagine nationalism? Or are we left trying to imagine what might be beyond it? You've been listening to Nationalism Reimagined, a special World Review podcast series from the New Statesman. I have been Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C., and this podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley and Mae Robson. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening. 